So last week, for those of you who were with us, or perhaps you had the opportunity to listen to the uh, recording, uh, we talked about evidences for the resurrection. And uh, the very first point had to do with the fact that uh, the gospel was birthed in a culture that was a culture of honor and shame. Uh, you can still see that type of culture today if you go to the Middle East or if you go to the Far East. We're not as familiar with it here in the Western world. Uh, but I shared just briefly about that to give some context. And I want to take off of that point this morning and I want to explore this idea of honor and glory as it's found in Scripture, particularly as it occurs in the book of Romans. I teach the book of Romans at the Bible College, and over the last few times I've taught it, I've really become impressed with this theme of glory that runs through the letter to the Romans. And actually, uh, this pastime as I went through it and meditated on it even more, I got really excited uh, about what the Bible has to say about this theme of glory. And I hope you'll be blessed as we look at it this morning. Um, I got on Google and tried to find a few pictures that uh, demonstrate honor and glory. And it's interesting to me because here in the Western world, we associate honor usually with the military and we frequently associate glory with athletics. And uh, I'm happy to say that England is still on the path to glory after yesterday, right? Uh, but I want to talk about glory of another sort as we get into the message today. So what I'm going to do, first of all, is begin with a little bit of background. So uh, the first thing I want to do is put up the quote that I had put up last week. Uh, and it has to do with the honor culture of the ancient world. So in case you weren't here, or just to refresh your memory, let me read this quote to you. A person born into first century Mediterranean culture was led from childhood to seek honor and to avoid disgrace. Honor comes from the affirmation of a person's worth by peers and society, awarded on the basis of an individual's ability to embody the virtues and attributes uh, his or her society's values. So um, again, in the ancient world, it was important to be part of an honorable family, to be considered an honorable individual. So if you wanted to have any kind of quality of life, this concept of honor was very significant. Now, um, Again, just let me paint a little more background uh, before we get into the book of Romans. Uh, I want to note that in the Old Testament, the word for glory also means honor. So you have a Hebrew word, and depending on context, it can be translated either as glory or honor. Now, the New Testament uses two different words, uh, but they're close synonyms. And we can put it this way. Uh, whatever is glorious is obviously worthy of honor. And the pursuit of honor will lead to glory. So hopefully you can see the connection that even though they're slightly different concepts, they're certainly connected to one another. Uh, and in some places, they're synonymous. Now, um, in the ancient world, this desire and need to be seen as an honorable individual 
actually created an atmosphere of competition. And I want to read to you a couple of passages from the Gospel of Mark, so before we get to uh, Romans, uh, again, just helping to set the background for this. You may have wondered as you've read through the Gospels and you come upon certain stories where the disciples begin arguing about who's the greatest. So uh, let me read to you one here from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 34. Uh, You're welcome to follow along if you'd like. So Mark 9, beginning with verse 30, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. You might remember we read this last Sunday. Verse 33, then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. Now, I find a lot of irony in that. Here, Jesus is talking about being handed over and killed and going to rise on the third day. And yet, on the way, they're not worried about Jesus being handed over or being killed. They're all concerned about their honor and who's going to be considered the greatest. Now, if we look over at chapter 10, I won't read this entire passage, but verses 32 through 35 is much the same. Jesus again begins to talk about his approaching death and how they're going up to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed, but on the third day he'll rise again. And no sooner does Jesus finish talking and the mother of James and John comes up and says, Lord, uh, I want you to grant that my sons may sit one on your left hand and one on your right hand in the kingdom. And all of the other disciples get upset that James and John's mother has come up to ask these positions of honor in the kingdom for them. Uh, And of course, Jesus then says, you know, uh, you really don't know what you're asking. And are you you, uh, willing to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And they say, yes, Lord, we are. Not really knowing what that is, I'm sure. Uh, And he says, you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, speaking of the suffering that Jesus is about to go through and that the apostles will later experience. But he says, really, it's not about uh, what the Gentiles do and lording authority over people, but the Son of Man came to serve and to be a servant of all, and the greatest in the kingdom will be a servant. This uh, is an important word to the disciples because, again, in the ancient world, people want to be considered honorable. Uh, And they will even compete for honor, as we see the disciples doing here. Who's going to be the greatest? Who gets to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom? And so there's this constant atmosphere of competition in the ancient Roman world of the first century. Now, this will strike us as rather strange, but one of the ways of acquiring honor was by boasting about what you've done. Now, that seems rather strange to us because anytime Uh, we hear anyone boasting, we think, you know, we get turned off and it's a very negative experience. But actually boasting in the ancient first century world was perfectly acceptable. I want to read you a quote on boasting here. In North America and Northern European societies, boasting always has a negative connotation. I think we'd agree with that. 
But in the honor cultures of the ancient Mediterranean, the practice covered by these words meant the acceptable practice of publicly making claims in relation to one's honor, a phenomenon that could be seen in numerous inscriptions in any city or town. Now, what the author here, Philip Essler, is talking about is, and, and we're aware of these, you know, if you, if you do any kind of touring, whether you go to Rome or whether you go to some ancient sites, there's always inscriptions, there's arches, and what are they doing? They're touting the glory of an individual. And this is to bring honor to that individual. Uh, maybe they build a sidewalk. Maybe they built a temple. Uh, maybe they paid for some athletic games for the entire town. And so their name would get publicized. You know, so-and-so built this temple for the great good of the people of Rome. And there'd be this massive inscription that would bring honor and glory to his name. It was a way of boasting. Now, of course, it was the wealthy and elite that could afford these inscriptions and these arches, but even amongst uh, common people, there would be various ways in which they would boast or proclaim about something good that they had done in order to uh, gain honor from it. Now, you notice this next quote from Robert Jewett. He says, Rome was the boasting champion of the ancient world filled with honorific monuments and celebrations of imperial glory. How many of you have ever been to Rome? Seen a lot of these uh, ancient uh, monuments and temples and so on. So uh, even today, though those things uh, are basically in ruins, we can see that, that Rome was filled with a lot of honorific monuments and celebrations. In fact, Rome was all about this whole idea of glory. And we're probably all familiar with the expression, the glory of Rome, right? So um, as we begin here to look at the book of Romans, we shouldn't be surprised that these words glory and honor uh, have a key place in Paul's message to the Christians. But one more thing before we get into the book of Romans, uh, I want to put up a couple of quotes that talk about this theme of glory in the teaching of Paul. Uh, the first quote says, the terminology of glory provides a window on virtually the whole of Paul's theology. Now that's quite a, a statement to make. Uh, that in other words, if, if we grasp this concept of glory and if we follow it through Paul's letter, it becomes a window on what his theology is all about. Um, this author goes on to tell us that the noun glory occurs 76 times and the verb glorified 12 times in Paul's letters, predominantly in Romans and Corinthians. Second quote from the same author says, the whole of Paul's gospel, which is centered in the death and resurrection, may be viewed as a message of restored and consummated glory. So if you live in a culture that is all about honor and all about seeking glory, particularly if you live in the capital city uh, where glory is one of the main things that everyone is after in the, in the capital of Rome, uh, then these words would be buzzwords. They would be words that people would be very familiar with. And when you use the words honor and you use the word glory, it would prick the ears of the people and they would want to listen in uh, to what's being said. Well, um, my strategy for the rest of the lesson is I'm going to walk us through various passages in Romans. 
We're not going to look at every passage in Romans that speaks of glory or honor, but I'm going to hit some highlights. So these verses won't be up on the screen, but if I refer to any verses outside of Romans, we're going to pop those up on the screen for you, okay? Now, um, the first verse I want us to turn to is Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and this is a verse that I'm sure every believer is familiar with. In this verse, Paul says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now think about that. If you are in Rome, and Rome is all about glory, and you hear this statement by Paul that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul is basically saying that there is a glory that it is not possible for human beings in and of their own strength and ability to gain. And that is a glory that comes from God. And everyone falls short. Why do they fall short? He says, because all have sinned. To put this perhaps in more modern terms, uh, maybe we don't relate as much to the concepts of honor and glory. But we certainly relate to the idea of wanting to be considered significant. Wanting to feel worthwhile. We want our loved ones and our friends to think of us as valuable people. Uh, we want to be considered as valuable contributors to a society. And so there is this sense of self-worth that we all desire, but we all struggle with it, don't we? Because when we really stop and think about ourselves, we realize we have thoughts that are bad thoughts. We realize we've said things that are wrong and have hurt other people. We realize that we've done things that are uh, evil. Uh, in the privacy of our own homes, perhaps when we're by ourselves, when we're thinking uh, honestly about our lives, probably you've had this thought, I certainly have. If everyone knew the things that I think and all of the things that I've done, I wouldn't have a friend in the world. Nobody would like me. See, that's a struggle with self-worth because we know deep down inside that we're not worthy. And so one of the things that we're wrestling with throughout life is this uh, struggle to want to be worthy and to want to be recognized as being worthy. So as Robert Jewett again says, to fall short is an honor issue. And everyone here in the Roman world, they're being competitive and they're struggling with one another. I'm more honorable than you. My family's more honorable than your family. My God's more honorable than your God. Whatever the topic might be, it's all about trying to one-up somebody else and to get the honor and to get the glory. And even though we might not quite approach it that way today, we certainly understand this need for significance and this need of recognition. And I don't think that that is a sinful desire. I do believe that that is something that God has put within the hearts of every human being. It is important to have a sense of worth and it is important to have a sense of significance. We were created to have that. But what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, is that we fell from that in some way. We, we fall short of God's glory. Were we created that way? Were we created to be short of God's glory? 
Well, if you'll go to the next slide there, Ross, we'll talk about how humans lost the glory. And here I invite you to back up to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read together verses 20 and 21. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, and became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So notice that Paul says that through the creation itself, God makes himself known. You look at the mountains and you look at the seas and you look at the stars and you ponder the vastness of this world and you realize that there must be a creator um, who is much bigger and who is much more powerful than you are. And so Paul's saying that, that creation itself testifies to God's glory. And of course, the psalmist in Psalm 19.1, says the same thing, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And yet Paul says here that the problem with human beings is that although they knew God through the creation, they refused to glorify him as God. So they took the glory from God. All right, where did that glory go? Well, as we um, read on in chapter 1 and verse 23, we're told that they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So they refused to glorify God, and what they did instead is they took that glory and they placed it either on man himself or they placed it in images of four-footed creatures and uh, other living beings on the earth. And they began to both glorify themselves and glorify the creatures of the earth and not give the glory to God. Now, it's this idea of stealing the glory from God and placing it where it doesn't belong that the scripture shows us that we have in fact once had glory with God but we now fall short of the glory because as we steal that glory, we're sinning against God. We're, we're taking that glory and placing it where it doesn't belong. And so it causes us to fall short. Now, in the creation story, we're told that we're made in the image of God. But you remember in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve's desire uh, is to be like God. The serpent comes and he says, oh no, if you eat of this fruit in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. It's a misplaced glory. Instead of reflecting the glory of the creator, Adam and Eve say, that sounds like a great deal. We can get the glory for ourselves. We can be like God. Now, if we turn to Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, uh, we notice there that uh, Psalm 8 is actually a commentary on Genesis chapters 1 through 2, the creation story. And the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. 
So we learn very clearly here from the psalmist as he comments on the creation story that in the beginning, when man and woman were created in the image of God, they were crowned with glory and honor. This is the glory of God. This is the glory that God imparts graciously to his human creation. But as they seek to want to be like God, sin enters the world and that glory becomes marred through sin. And so now with sin in the world, as Paul says, we all fall short of the glory of God. Well, moving on in Romans, I want to talk to you about the consequences of rejecting God's glory. So Paul says that even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Instead, they changed the glory, put it on mankind or put it on the the animal creation. Um, Sorry, um, backing up to um, verse 21, I have verse 23 on the slide, but it's actually verse 21. Notice that Paul said, after they did not glorify God, that they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, one of the basic meanings of the word glory is it has to do with radiance or brilliance or light and brightness. We often see descriptions of God's glory in Scripture described in terms of a brilliant light or a fire. Jesus, when he's up uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. It says that his face shone like the sun. They saw his glory. Um, When human beings refuse to glorify God and begin glorifying other things, including themselves, what happens is the light and the brilliance of the glory of God fades, and the heart within human beings becomes darkened they no longer see clearly. Now, uh, Paul goes on to say then in verses 24 to 26 that there is another consequence. Not only does uh, the heart become foolish and become darkened, but he says that this leads to people dishonoring their bodies and having dishonorable passions. Notice these verses with me. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Remember, we're talking about honor and glory and the importance of it in the first century world. So to hear that glory was not being given to God where it belongs properly and that it is leading to the dishonoring of uh, people's bodies uh, is a really serious, serious accusation. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. So Paul says the consequences of not glorifying God and putting the glory where it belongs results in a darkened heart, and it also results in us dishonoring our own bodies. So those are the grave consequences of it. Now the irony is, if we think back to Genesis 1 again, verses 26 to 28, the irony is is that though we were made in the image of God, 
and had his glory bestowed on us, we've exchanged that glory for an inferior glory, a glory about ourselves, a glory about the creation. And therefore, we are ever in a pursuit for glory and honor, which never fully satisfies us. We might put it in the sense of we're always in the pursuit of feeling worthy, feeling important, being significant. And we can never seem to get enough affirmation. It only takes one negative word, right? Or one negative action. Oh, and here we go with feelings of of worthlessness again. Um, This pursuit of human honor and glory will always end up frustrating us. We were designed to bear the glory of God. But because we did not glorify God, we lost the glory. We fell short of the glory. Our foolish hearts were darkened, and we've become dishonorable in our actions. Now, um, there is an answer, of course, to this, and this is part of the good news or the gospel. But before we continue on in Romans, I want to turn you back. You don't have to turn there. I'll have the passage here on uh, the screen. But I do want to turn you back to 1 Samuel. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30, we have this expression, those who honor me, I will honor. Um, Remember that the Hebrew word can mean either honor or glory. And so in this context, we could translate it as those who glorify me, I will glorify. Now, this is the solution to the never-ending quest for glory and honor. Not seeking our own glory, but seeking the glory and honor that comes from God. That is the only way we can truly be satisfied. After all, human glory, human honor always fades, right? I mean, even if England wins the World Cup, in four years from now, who's going to care? It's all going to be about who's winning that year. Honor and glory in this world are not permanent. But the glory that comes from God is a glory beyond this world. And it's a glory that's everlasting. And therefore, it's the only glory that can truly satisfy. Now, the context here in 1 Samuel, chapters 2 through 4, concerns Eli and his sons. And what are they doing? Well, if we had time to uh, go through the passage, we'd learn that they are actually stealing the glory from God. Eli's and his son's attempt to steal God's glory obviously results in failure. Both Eli and his sons are killed in a devastating battle where the Philistines come and defeat Israel. And uh, not only do Eli and his sons perish, but they actually capture and take away the ark of God. In the process of this happening, Eli's daughter-in-law is pregnant. Uh, And hearing all of this distressful information uh, about the ark being captured and her father-in-law passing away and her husband dying, uh, it causes her to just bow over with labor pains and to give birth on the spot. The sad thing is, is in the process of her giving birth, she dies. But as she's uh, dying, she gives the the, the child a name. Uh, And in 1 Samuel 4, 21 through 22, we read, and she named the child Ichabod. The word Ichavod in Hebrew means no glory. 
okay? And so as she's giving birth to this child, she's saying, there's no glory. And she says, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Whenever mankind attempts to steal or rob God of his glory, it always has dire consequences. (laughs) We could literally say that the ministry of Eli and his sons died on that day because they died on that day. And the glory actually departed from Israel on that occasion. The reason that no earthly amount of glory and honor can satisfy us is because we were created to share in God's glory. Now back to Romans, and let's talk a little bit about the solution that Paul says that the gospel offers for this uh, need and desire for honor and glory. If we go back to chapter three, we've read 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24 begins with the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is the solution to our problem. So I wanna read this verse and then talk about this solution. He says in verse 24 of chapter three, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe how God had set Jesus forth as a propitiation by his blood uh, to demonstrate his righteousness and how uh, he uh, has justified those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It is the sacrifice of Christ that uh, mends the broken relationship between human beings and God, right? And so it is the sacrifice of Jesus that washes away sin. And remember, because all have sinned, they've fallen short of the glory. If the sin is washed away, then it is possible again to receive the glory that God intended us to have from the beginning. Now, uh, Paul goes on to say that our response our way of accepting this sacrifice and having our sins forgiven is, of course, faith. Read with me now Romans 3, verses 27 and 28, and you're going to see where this whole idea of boasting comes in that I talked about at the beginning of the message. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Uh, Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. So you ever wonder as you're reading through Romans chapter three, what's this whole thing about boasting? Why does Paul bring that up? Well, if you understand the cultural context that he's writing in, you know that there is this competition for honor. And one of the ways to gain honor is through boasting. So to make you think well of myself, I'll do some good deed and then I'll brag about it and everyone will run around town and say, oh, what a great person Randy is because he did such and such and that will bring honor to me, right? Paul says, look, if we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then there's nothing as human beings that we can do to attain that glory. 
No amount of boasting, no amount of good deeds or good works or things said or done will ever allow us to achieve the glory of God that we lost in creation. But the good news, Jesus died as an atonement for your sins. And if you have faith in Jesus, it wipes away your sin. Your sin's what causes you to fall short of God's glory and you can once again uh, begin to be a participant in that glory. Now, Paul gives the example of Abraham in Romans chapter four, and he's talking about how through faith, Abraham received God's righteousness, correct? Now, I wanna take you down to chapter four and verse 20, um, because there's a connection here between faith and glory. Speaking of Abraham and believing in God's promises, it says, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, now catch this, giving glory to God. Remember that in the beginning, our problem was, although we knew the creator, we did not glorify him as God. Faith is the channel or the avenue that leads us back to God being glorified. You say, well, how is that? Because the gospel teaches us again that it's not through our own efforts or through our own abilities that we can achieve the glory of God. Our sins have caused us to fall short. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, our sins have been removed so that we can experience the glory. Who are we giving the credit to? Look what I did? No, where is boasting, Paul says. It's all about faith. And what does faith do? Faith puts the focus back where it belongs. Thanks be to Jesus, who was crucified and died for me, whose blood was shed. And through believing in his name, I have my sins forgiven, right? So the glory goes back to God. So faith is the avenue by which God becomes glorified. And as God is glorified, what is it that he's promised us? I will honor those who honor me, right? And so as we give glory to God, the glory is able to flow back in our direction. Now there's another way in which Paul also talks about a practical way in which we give glory to God. And uh, for this, I need to flip to the end of the letter of Romans. Uh, I invite you to go over to Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7 in just a moment. But remember, the response of faith brings an end to the competitive spirit. Uh, we're no longer competing for honor as we realize that the only boast that we have is in what Christ has accomplished for it. So now, I'm not worried about being better than you. I'm not worried about putting you down so that I can look better. Because I realize that we're all sinners and we've all come to the cross and we've all received the gift of God's grace and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, right? I also realize then that God has blessed me uh, with the opportunity to once again experience his glory. And so as brothers and sisters, as a family of God who've been saved by the common blood of Jesus Christ, uh, Paul says in chapter 15 and verse 6, 
that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, what's the context here? Well, back in chapter 14, Paul was talking about a problem that the Christians in Rome had with one another. They were judging and despising each other. There was division within uh, the Christian congregations in Rome. Uh, And Paul rebukes them for it. Uh, And what he tells them to do is to welcome one another and that the stronger are to look out for the weaker and so on. Uh, And they're to bear one another's burdens, etc., Uh, Paul says that as we do this, as we put away our divisiveness, which again is so human, right? And it's part of this competition for significance. Uh, We see it uh, amongst young people as we grow up. They want to be considered important by their peers and so they do whatever it takes. And sometimes that involves putting somebody else down or, or whatever, you know, to... Uh, get the recognition from the peer group that you're looking for. Well, it doesn't just happen with teenagers, it happens with adults, you know? Uh, And divisiveness can creep into the body of Christ and cause problems. But Paul says, when we recognize that there's no reason to be competitive, uh, there's no reason to think that one person's better than another, we're all on a level playing field here, Jesus had to die for each one of our sins, right? Right? When we realize that, we can come together and with one mind and with one mouth, we can glorify God. So instead of thinking bad thoughts about my brothers and sisters, instead of saying bad things about my brothers and sisters, instead we're all gathered together with one mind and with one mouth, and that brings glory to God. Love and unity of the body of Christ brings glory to God. In verse 7, he says, receive one another just as Christ received us to the glory of God. When we welcome one another, another translation of this word, when we receive each other, we're bringing glory to God. So through our love and through our faith, we return the glory to where it belongs. Because when people look at a body of Christian believers and they say, wow, those people They bend over backwards for each other. They really love each other. What's so special about them? Who gets glorified from that? It's God, right? So the glory goes back to where it belongs. So there's two real ways when we come to Christ in which we bring the glory back to where it belongs in the first place, through our faith and through our love. Now, that's the solution that Paul offers but there's also a reward that Paul speaks about. And so um, I want to mention that passage again in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30, and we'll see how it applies here uh, in the book of Romans. We'll also jump over to Corinthians and see a couple of things there. But remember the passage in 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. So if Christians by their faith and by their love are returning the glory to God, is God going to be faithful and give glory to his people? He said he would. He said, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who glorify me, I will glorify, right? 
Now, if we go to the book of Romans, uh, we're going to flip back now to chapter 5. I want to read with you verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For many years, I had no idea what that expression meant. What does it mean to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? What it means is that now that I am a Christian and my sins no longer separate me from God and I give the glory back to God through my faith and through my love of the brethren, I can expect that God is also going to glorify me. I have the hope of the glory of God. That's an incredible thought. When you think of the glory of God, and of course none of us can fully imagine it, but as we go through scripture, we have some glimpses of that glory. And God is going to share that with us? That's an incredible hope. Now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks a little bit more about this. Uh, So I want to read with you verses uh, 18 through 23 of Romans chapter 8. So beginning with verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory that will be revealed in us. No suffering of the present time can possibly compare to the glory that God has prepared for his people. That's good news. That's the gospel, boy. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Paul's gone all the way back to the beginning again and story of Adam and Eve. Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our bodies. So Paul's talking about the end times there, isn't he? And he's saying in this present world, there's suffering, um, there, there are trials, but the suffering that we're going through now is nothing to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And we are groaning and the creation is groaning, waiting for this redemption that is ours. Now, Paul speaks about this very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read together with you verses 41 to 43. Now, by the way, just to set the context here, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter where Paul is discussing the resurrection of Jesus. And he has that famous statement that if the dead are not raised, even Christ is not raised. And if, and if Christ is not raised, we of all men are most miserable, Right? And so he's speaking about the the definiteness of the resurrection. 
but he moves from speaking about the resurrection of Christ to uh, focusing on our resurrection because he said Christ is the first fruits. And if you know that Jesus was raised from the dead and received a glorified body, guess what? You can be sure that you are going to be raised from the dead and receive a glorified body like Jesus. So here in chapter 15, verses 41 to 43, he says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That's these mortal bodies. What is raised is imperishable. Now catch this. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Hallelujah. These bodies are dishonorable, aren't they? Because they're imperfect, because we're sinners, right? Even when we give our lives to Christ, it's a lifelong battle against sin and to allow the spirit to rule in our lives. So these bodies are dishonorable. But Paul says it's just like a seed that has to go into the ground. And these dishonorable bodies, they're gonna go into the ground, but guess what? Just like the planting of a seed causes a, a beautiful flower or tree to bloom forth, so when these dishonorable bodies are planted in the ground, we will one day be raised with a glorious body. Just as Jesus was. The body that the apostles witnessed after the resurrection, the body of Jesus that could do amazing things and go amazing places, you know. Uh, and he is the first fruits, Paul says, of the resurrection. In other words, he's our guarantee that the same is going to happen to us. Now, back one more time to Romans chapter 8, uh, and I want to look with you at verses 29 and 30. So as Paul comes to a conclusion, conclusion of this discussion of how the suffering we experience isn't going to be compared to the glory that we'll have, notice these words of assurance in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now let me stop there for a moment. We're going to see in our next passage, and I'm sure you already know this to be true, that Jesus is the image of God, and he is the image of the glory of God. Now Paul says here that we as Christians uh, have been foreknown and we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the image of God that we were created with in the beginning, well, we didn't lose that image totally, but it was marred by sin. And that glory that was in us was marred and it caused us to fall short of the glory of God. But in Jesus, we are being conformed into the image of Jesus and Jesus is the image of the glory of God. Now he goes on to say um, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and we've already spoken about that idea. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also did what? Glorify. Now, 
I realize there's uh, some interesting words in this passage. I'm not concerned about some of those words right now, but I want to ask you this, this question. Have you been called by God? Have you been justified? Then you know what? Paul says you're going to be glorified. Amen. There's no doubt about it. This is a process that God is taking us through. And he says, just as surely as you have been justified, you will be glorified. Now, one final passage, and we'll wrap everything up. Uh, And this, again, comes from the second letter to the Corinthians, found in chapter 3, verses 18, through chapter 4, verse 6. And I want to read this whole passage, and I'll kind of pause along the way to make a few comments. And I'm using this passage as a way of summing up what we're talking about here this morning. Now, in this passage, Paul has talked about uh, how Moses came down from the mount with the Ten Commandments. Remember, he had spent that time on Mount Sinai with God, and when he came down, he had been in the presence of God's glory, and what happened to Moses' appearance? His face shone. His face reflected the glory of God because he had been in the presence of God's glory. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, the people are like, your face is too bright. We can't look at you. And so he puts a veil over his face, right? So Paul's discussing that whole passage here. And then in verse 18, he says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So this glorification is a process that's taking place now As we are believers in Jesus, we are already in the process of being glorified, but one day we're going to experience glorification in all of its fullness when we come face to face and behold the glory of God. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now chapter four, verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Hey, if this is our promise, You know, what can cause us to lose heart? But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. In other words, we do not live dishonorable lives. As Christians, we want to glorify our Father. We live honorable lives. So he says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now this is going to remind us of Romans chapter 1, verse 21. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. That is a mouthful. Now, let me break that down real quickly. Who's the God of this world that's blinded the minds of unbelievers? He's talking about Satan, isn't he? Remember how Paul said that when, even though people knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, and it caused what? Their foolish hearts to become darkened. Here he says that the old serpent himself, Satan, has a part to play in that. He blinds the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory that is in Jesus Christ. But when that veil is lifted through the power of the Spirit drawing us to the Father, we begin to see the light, 
We accept the gift of Jesus as our sacrifice and our Savior, and the glorification process begins. So, he says that um, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We spoke about how Christ is God's perfect image. He's what we should have been from the beginning had we never sinned, right? Um, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Again, we're not boasting about ourselves. We're not competing for anything anymore. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Lord. But Jesus Christ as Lord uh, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And here's the grand conclusion. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. Where did that occur? Genesis 1, right? Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have literally a glorious future ahead of us. If you are in Christ, you are already partakers of the glory of God. And yet, you're still in these dishonorable bodies, right? And so that glory doesn't shine through perfectly yet. But in our actions toward others, in our love toward our brothers and sisters, we bring glory to God. Through our faith, we point people to God, which brings glory to God. And in the end, God says, those who honor me, I will honor. And Jesus is going to raise all of the believers one day from the dead or come back to those who are still on the earth and take us up to be with him. And our bodies are going to be changed in an instant, Paul says, right? From these corruptible bodies to an incorruptible body. One day, we are going to experience the glory of God in all of its fullness. Do we deserve any of that? Absolutely not. Doesn't that just make you fall more in love with who God is? That he is not only willing to save us, but he says, I don't want all this glory for myself. I want to share it with you. I want to glorify you. Listen, if that doesn't help your self-esteem, then there's really nothing that can. But if you're trying to find self-worth in this world, and if you're trying to make yourself more important, guess what? You're always going to be frustrated. But if you surrender to Jesus Christ and give God the glory he deserves, he will fill you with his glory and you'll never need to thirst again for worth or significance. Praise God.